Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, welcome to the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is Lynn Twist, who for the last 40 years has been recognized as a global visionary. She has worked on alleviating poverty and hunger, has supported social justice and environmental sustainability. She has worked with Mother Teresa in Calcutta in the refugee camps in Ethiopia and in the Amazon rainforest. Lynn is also an author of The Soul of Money, Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Life, and with her husband is the founder of the Pachamama Alliance. So we're going to talk about many things today, but really primarily about her own commitment to improving the world and improving the lives of others. I hope you enjoy. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, today's guest is Lynn Twist, and you've heard a little bit about her before we started. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you, Jim. I'm delighted to be part of this. Well, you know, thank you so much. You know, I'm just beginning this podcast effort, and uh, it's actually, it's wonderful because I get to connect with a lot of fascinating people who I've been fortunate enough to meet and who uh, have become friends. So uh, you're one of those, of course. One of the things I try to do, uh, because I believe that who we are today is a manifestation of our past. And, uh, and that can be a very positive driver, and it can also uh, actually, unfortunately, be a baggage that you carry that chronically affects your life in a bad way. So I know you're Catholic, and I, you've told me that before, I believe, and uh, maybe you can go through a little bit of your childhood, your parents, and your uh, Catholic beliefs, and maybe connect that to who you are today. Well, I think, the, to, to be more accurate, I was a Catholic. I mean, that was how <laughs> I was raised. I was born and raised in a, in a Catholic household, so that's, you know, you do what your parents tell you to do. But I do remember questioning it. Pretty early on, my best friend, Lizzie Lee, was going to be in her Christmas pageant, and she had a major role, and she wasn't Catholic. She was, I think, congregational, congregational, something like that. And um, I wanted to go to her Christmas pageant. And when I said that I was going to go see Lizzie Lee in her Christmas pageant, I was told I could not go into the congregational church. Not by my parents, but I think it was a priest or maybe the Monsignor, somebody very high up in the Catholic Church in my little world. And that seemed completely ridiculous to me. I think I was like eight. Why would I not go into another church? What does that have to do with anything? And um, right now, that, that whatever that rule in the catechism was way back there, they've abandoned that idea. But, but growing up with that uh, faith and thinking it was so wonderful, at least until that moment, and then not being able to go to Lizzie Lee's Christmas pageant at the Congregational Church, I, that's when I started questioning everything about it. Uh, I wasn't sure that who, who was in charge and who was the Pope. And, and I wanted to uh, be like Mother Teresa, who didn't seem to care about the catechism and all those rules. She just was there to help people. So she became sort of my Catholic icon after that, and I, I didn't feel that comfortable as what I'll call a Catholic, but it was what I knew. And then my father died very suddenly when I was 
13. Uh, my father was a great musician. He was a big band leader. He was extremely charismatic. I was the musical one. I was going to be the carry the musical tradition forward. And he died at age 50, he was very young, of a heart attack in the middle of the night. So we all went to bed one night in my family. I, there's four, four children, my mother, my father, and my grandmother lived with us at the time. So there were, let's see, that's six, seven of us. And the next morning we all woke up except for one person, my dad. He was dead. He died in his sleep. His heart just stopped. My mother sent us all to school, thought my father looked so tired. She was, of course, sleeping in the same bed with him. She let him sleep in. When she went back to wake him, he was cold. And so we all came home from school, and this shocking, shocking event was, like for any child, I immediately thought it was my fault that my father died. I couldn't understand it. He was alive, then he was dead. He was gone. And he was a great musician, and I hadn't been practicing my piano. So this is really kind of, you know, sounds so silly. But um, I was going to be the great pianist. He was a pianist. I had the talent. I had the lessons. I was doing so well. And I hadn't practiced my piano lessons, I don't know, for weeks. I was kind of faking it when my teacher came. And this wasn't, you know, cognitive. But when my father died, something inside me said it was my fault. Because my father was a famous musician, my mother was overwhelmed. She was 46, four kids her mother living with her, her husband suddenly dead. He's a famous person. There was press and there was, he, she, he had a 36-piece orchestra, all the men in the band. His sing, girl singer was Dinah Shore for a while. I mean, he was a very famous guy. So she was completely shocked, overwhelmed. She didn't know where the insurance papers were. She didn't know if there was a will. We lived in a gigantic house. She was just completely unable to tend to her own children. So we were sort of farmed out. And I became very close to a nun who was my Sunday school teacher. We didn't even go to Catholic school. We went to public school because my mother was kind of a civil rights person. And I just went to Sister Benjamin. And she counseled me. She held me. She, she was this wonderful, wonderful nun who took me in after my father died and suggested I go on retreat. So I suddenly became very Catholic, uh, not very Catholic, but I'd say very close to God. It wasn't the religion, it was, it was God that I wanted to understand why my dad was taken from me. And she was just this angel who kind of got me through it. And I went on retreat. Uh, I told my, I was very popular. I was a pom-pom girl and I was dating the, you know, the football star and all. I was that kind of kid. So I told my friends I was going to visit my other grandmother, and I went to a retreat center in Des Plaines, Illinois, outside of Chicago, where I lived. I lived in Evans, Illinois. And I just prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for forgiveness to bring my father back. And I was only, you know, I was 13, so I wasn't a little child, but I, I just, it couldn't, he, I was almost in love with my father, like adolescent girls some, often are when you're just becoming, you know, coming into puberty. And I was so shocked by it um, and so stunned by it and so uh, in such deep grief that the only thing I knew to do was turn to God because my mom was handling all the, all the consequences of, of the death of her husband, who was quite young um, and in the prime of his life, actually. So that's when I started what I would now call my spiritual life. It came through the lens of religion because I didn't even know the term spiritual, but that's when my inner life was born. 
And now I would say it was a source of meditation. It was a source of my understanding who I am. It was a source of my own personal pain and suffering that became my transformation. And so I continued to be, you know, a popular kid, but had this inner life, this quiet inner life. And I prayed and prayed and prayed, which I would now call meditation. Um, and then when I um, graduated from high school, I had to go to Stanford University, where I know you are, because that's where my dad went. And I wanted my dad in heaven to be proud of me. And so I got into Stanford. And when I was at Stanford, I remember Catholicism, there was a, um, when you go to a, a, a new school, they, they offer you everything. There was a, a center for Catholic students, and I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to get involved in that. I just wanted that inner life to continue, and I got very involved in poetry. And um, Ivor Winters was the poet in residence at Stanford when I was there, and I, uh, as a freshman, I got deeply engaged in poetry, Rumi, Tagore, um, you know, poets that, Rilke, poets that most people at that time didn't even know about. And it became my path. I won the Stanford Poetry Contest as I started writing poetry. So I now saw, so I would say that would be the next, if you're talking kind of spiritually, and I think you are, that was my next spiritual path. And then, of course, I was at Stanford during the 60s, during the Civil Rights Movement, during the Vietnam War. And as people I went to high school went to Vietnam and started dying, I got very, very active uh, against the Vietnam War. I, 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 there was a lot of activity on campus, and there was a lot of activity about um, going to Mississippi and Alabama and signing up black people to vote during the Civil Rights Movement. So the Civil Rights Movement and the uh, ending the Vietnam War, activism became my church. And I remember, you know, in, when I was in, in college, when uh, our hero... John Kennedy was assassinated. So first Kennedy was assassinated, and that was like a knife in my heart because he was my guy um, when I was a freshman in college, and he was my generation's hero. And then right after that, the next assassination, Malcolm X, then Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, four assassinations in five years of my generation's heroes, Bobby Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and John Kennedy. And it was like a knife in the heart of our activism over and over and over again. But what it did, I think, to my generation was strengthen our activism, strengthen our capacity to find our inner strength, strengthen our spiritual roots for our activism. And I became out of that, I'd say, the kind of person I am today. I call myself a pro-activist, an activist for and not against, and really committed to the transformation of the conditions of life on this planet. And um, it was the beginning of my, my work early on with the EST training, which was hugely transformation for me. That was another church for me. And then the Hunger Project, which was another church for me, and now working with indigenous people with the Pachamama Alliance, a different kind of church. So I'd say I went from being Catholic, and of course I did end up working very closely with Mother Teresa when I worked for the Hunger Project, Ending World Hunger, and I really saw what it meant to be uh, one with God through her, through her work, through uh, working with her, through following her everywhere I could. So um, in that way, I'm sort of still a Catholic, but a way different kind of Catholic than the church ever told me to be. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, though, you comment about uh, the death of your father and blaming yourself. And 
it's interesting because a lot of people don't appreciate that words have power and events for a child often also have a great deal of power that can inspire them, but it's, it can also hinder them. As an example, I was uh, giving a talk one time about this topic and a nurse stood up and asked me a question or made a comment, I should say. And, and she, this is a woman who has a PhD. She's head of a hospital. I mean, extraordinarily accomplished woman. And she said, she started crying. And uh, she said, you know, I so appreciate what you're saying. When I was a kid, my father told me I would be nothing. This poor lady, you know, carried this her entire life versus what could have been an extraordinary statement that would empower her, which is, you know, you're wonderful, you're so smart and talented, you can be anything. And it's interesting how, especially as children, we translate so many things that happen to us as a result of us. Even in my own situation with a father who is an alcoholic and a mother who is disabled, I somehow translated that into, I had something to do with this. And this idea of childhood trauma is extraordinarily powerful. And as you were just saying, for you, while it was a great deal of suffering, that being said, it allowed you to find your spiritual self and has led you going forward. But again, you know, sadly, that's not always the case for people. When did you connect with Mother Teresa? Was that after Stanford? Well, after Stanford, I, I, I got married to Bill Twist, to whom I'm still married. And we began our life together. And early on in our, when I was, I, I had three children by the time I, I discovered the EST training. But I, I was a young mother you know, with my hands full, and my husband Bill was doing quite well in business, and we were kind of getting caught up in the keeping up with the Joneses thing. I mean, I I started to lose my way. You know, I was he he was starting to make some some significant money, so I was trying to look a certain way and wear designer clothes and collect wine. I didn't even like wine, and then we were trying to collect art. You know, we were trying to be somebody we weren't. Um, I love art and I love wine. I'm nothing against it, but just I was young and I wasn't really I wasn't that interested. And I was doing it for status because I kind of wanted to be cool. And then a friend told me about the EST training, which is the precursor to what's now called the Landmark Forum. And um, it was quite controversial at the time and very almost harsh. And it was founded by Werner Erhard, and um, and I didn't know who he was, and but I heard it was it was something that really made a difference, and I was eager to kind of check it out. So I, I took it. And the thing was absolutely transformational for me. I was completely blown away by the S training. It was two weekends long, one person leading it, a trainer, 250 people, Friday, Saturday, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, then next weekend, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday. It was just, it blew my mind. And I came out of that realizing that I did it was not my fault that my father died. That was my big realization. They do a lot of really work, uh, work on early trauma in that, in that program. Um, and I, I, got, I got clear that I had blamed myself my whole life for my father's death because I didn't practice the piano. How ridiculous is that? But I saw, I, I unlocked that in myself. And it, it was not just that, but also everything about the S training, which really opened up my eyes to other dimensions of living that gave me access to 
that I could make a difference with my life, let me put it that way, that my life was meaningful, could be totally meaningful, and that I could put it in service. And it was right after the S training uh, experience that Werner Erhard started working on ending world hunger, which it then was like folly to talk about ending world hunger. But he uh, and Buckminster Fuller, who I also got to know. So I started studying with Buckminster Fuller out of the S training. That was sort of amazing that I happened to end up knowing and being almost like a a granddaughter, I'll say, to Bucky Fuller, who was such an amazing human being. And then I introduced Buckminster Fuller to Werner Erhard, along with some other people who helped me. But that introduction was the founding of the Hunger Project. And Buckminster Fuller, who really lived a life that a little individual can make a difference that transforms all of humanity. That's what, that was that was what his life was all about. He he devoted his life to to the experiment. Could one simple, ordinary individual live a life that would transform all of humanity? And um, and he that was Bucky. And then Werner was all about the transformation of the human condition. And when those two people met, the Hunger Project was born. And so I was kind of there at the birth. I didn't found the Hunger Project, but I was one of the early people. And then suddenly I realized, gosh, I could be useful. I could make a difference with my life. I could actually play a role in ending world hunger. Oh my God. So I got very involved in the Hunger Project as a volunteer. Then I got hired. Then I became one of the key people. And that of course took me to India. I mean, if you work on ending world hunger, you end up in India, end up in Africa and India and Bangladesh and places like that. And when I was in India, I realized, oh my God, I'm in India. I'm working on ending world hunger. Now I was going back and forth because I had children, but I would spend a lot of time in India. And um, I realized, oh my God, maybe someone here would introduce me to Mother Teresa. That, that would be like a childhood dream come true. And I shared that with a friend named Indira Koitra. I'll never forget this. And she said, oh, I know Mother Teresa. I was like, you know Mother Teresa? <laughs> she said, oh, yes, I know Mother Teresa. I'll, I'll, I'll introduce you. So she said that, and then it was a couple of years before I actually was able to uh, make it happen. But she did arrange for me to meet with Mother Teresa. And that meeting was another life-changing meeting. So the S training, my father's death, the S training, the beginning of the Hunger Project, meeting Buckminster Fuller and introducing Warner and Bucky, and then um, meeting Mother Teresa just was a total game changer for me because I actually saw God. Whether people believe in God or not, when, you're, when, you're, when you saw Mother Teresa, you saw at least what uh, I'm calling the largest definition of what we would call God, not somebody in the sky somewhere, but the experience of God living within a human being. And so I, I, whenever I was in India, I would do anything I could to spend time with her, and she became a great mentor to me. And that was another part of my path that I'm deeply, deeply grateful for and was honored to, um, to have show up in my path. And I'll always be grateful to Indira Koitra. If you're listening to this, once again, thank you very much. <laughs> you know, it is interesting to be in the presence of individuals like Mother Teresa or Werner or uh, Bucky Fuller uh, and people like that. You know, and it's interesting. I've subsequently uh, really had the pleasure and the honor and the gift of 
you know, being with Desmond Tutu and uh, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar and Sadhguru and Thich Nhat Hanh and um, Noah, these are profound experiences. And and uh, alluding to what you said earlier, seeing someone who is totally selfless and how they walk in the world is really profound because, as you were saying regarding uh, you're developing affluence in adulthood, people get lost in these things of, uh, geez, I have to go to this event, uh, and uh, uh, I have to be seen here, and uh, you know, I have to dress this way, and I have to have these uh, sort of habits, and I have to have a big house. And, uh, and unfortunately, so many people get lost in that and then it gets translated, unfortunately, into a belief that if you do all of those things, that is equivalent to happiness. And I think, of course, as you know, that's a, a false prophet. <laughs> you know, so many people chase that. And, uh, and certainly for myself, uh, coming from my background, I thought if I just get this and if I just do that and if I just get up here it'll all be better and I'll be incredibly happy. And you know, it, it, children who grow up in poverty or these challenging circumstances carry a lot of shame. And so the driver in my case was shame and trying to prove myself worthy. And each time I did one of these things, which you know, in and of themselves were wonderful, but I was never any happier. And in fact, sort of at the top of it, I... Uh, theoretically had everything. I had a position of prominence. I was uh, well-to-do. I was a successful entrepreneur. And I was single at the time. And I had all my friends, of course, telling me how great I was. I'd come home every evening and just be more miserable than I had ever been. And I think, uh, sadly, though, there's a emptiness in all of us. And unfortunately, the way society, not just the U.S., uh, but I think now throughout the world, is structured is this false belief that conspicuous consumption will make you happy. And what's even sadder is, you know, people come from foreign countries here who they may not be wealthy, but they have shelter, they have security, they have food. And then they come here, and first of all, it's very challenging for many immigrants, but there's nothing here other than this emptiness. And I think what happens is, so many people who are poor or even middle-class people look up to wealthy people with a belief that that gives happiness and therefore they want to be like those people. And then what that leads to is these people, they keep trying to stuff stuff in them and display it in the belief that uh, that'll fill that emptiness. And it's I, I'm sure you've seen this over and over again. Yeah, that's... um. Well, I've been very privileged um, to work with people of enormous wealth. I have an institute called the Soul of Money Institute now, and I wrote a book called The Soul of Money, because as a, a person working in the what I call the um, social profit work, I don't call it nonprofit or not-for-profit, I call it social profit work, I do a lot of fundraising. I've raised hundreds of millions of dollars, probably a billion dollars, I don't know, but um, to... Um, have people see that the resources flowing through their life don't really belong to them. They don't belong to any of us. They belong to all of us. And, it, and it's just like water. Uh, money is needs to move through the world and keep. we can need to keep moving it towards the highest good. All of us. Governments too. Everybody. And so that's my one of the big 
things that I learned from Mother Teresa, actually. Uh, there's a whole story in my book about it, but um, that this is uh, why money's called a currency is because it's a current. It's not designed to be accumulated. Uh, that's like water that's stagnant in a pond. It makes you sick. It, it, it's toxic. It needs to move and flow to purify, cleanse, and grow. And money is a, a, a currency. Uh, it's a current. And so I help people to understand that, people who have very little, little trickle coming through, or people who have a rushing river coming through, that it's coming through. It's not like this. And so we, we lose our way with our relationship with money and the the, the money culture is so distorted, the commercial culture, the consumer culture that tells us to consume, consume, buy, buy, take, 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 and accumulate everything you can. So I, I know very deeply and very intimately, as you do, Jim, and I love I love your book, Magic Shop. I make everybody I know read it. Um, You're so kind. Uh, because Thank the, you. Uh, it is a hamster wheel, and you get in there and you can't get out. And uh, Mother Teresa really taught me because she was a great fundraiser. People don't know that about her, but she was one heck of a fundraiser. That the vicious cycle of wealth is as challenging, intractable, and is, has as much misery as the vicious cycle of poverty in its own way. It has designer clothes. It's very looks really good. But it can be just devastating. And a lot of the families that I've worked with have abandonment issues there. There's addiction issues. There's all kinds of stuff that they're uh, hiding with the big gates and the black blackened windows and the limousine and the designer clothes. So it do, it doesn't. Not all families are that way, obviously, that have wealth. But the ones that are philanthropic, that is the medicine for that kind of um, overcompensation. Over, you know, we we have a world that overcompensates people and undercompensates most people, and way overcompensates. I mean, no one's worth being paid, you know, $50 million a year. I mean, that's just not right. And no one can handle that well. No one does. And even the wealthiest uh, among us who try their best to have their children not grow up entitled, they can't, they can't escape that. So we, uh, you and I both know, but you know it personally um, more than I do. I mean, we did well, too. Bill had, we had more money than we needed. But then we started a foundation, and now, you know, now we're normal. <laughs> you know? um, but I, I do say that I think you're a, a, a beautiful teacher. Your book, your way of being, your life is an extraordinary teaching for people who acquire enormous wealth. And um, being in the Silicon Valley place that you live and, and uh, having done what you did with your wealth and, um, and being so incredibly philanthropic and generous and giving your life to service. I'm, I'm a, you know, I really bow to you. Well, <laughs> it's about you, not, <laughs> but thank you so much. I mean, that's very kind of you. And it's, although, uh, you know, we start in different places, though, I think uh, the lessons that we've learned are the universality of what you were just talking about. Uh, and this is what's so sad is, like you, I meet many wealthy people and what I find extraordinary is that almost at every level of wealth, they somehow believe they're middle class. And it's extraordinary to me because they'll say, well, you know, I really don't have any money to give as you're in their 8,000 square foot penthouse in New York. <laughs> and it's interesting because they're not looking down and being so grateful 
of for their privilege, which then, of course, I believe puts them in a position where they frankly have an obligation to be of service to others. But the problem is they're always looking up at what they don't have. And I think that's really, really a horribly sad statement because uh, it just, again, drives this incredible sort of determination to have more and to believe you don't have enough. And because you don't have enough, you can't share it. And, you know, this goes back to this idea of the hungry ghost, where you keep trying to satiate your hunger to fill this void you have, and you falsely believe that it's by having things that people see and tell you how great you are. And, uh, of course, as you know, the real sustenance has to do with being of service. And what's extraordinary is that being of service obviously is very, very powerful in terms of another person's life or a project that can be beneficial to society. But what is forgotten sometimes, I think, is that it has a huge, huge positive effect on you. And it changes everything. You know, when you're of service, when you give, when you truly connect with others, it's amazingly powerful. Just a comment also on, uh, you said no one's worth over $50 million. And I would say it's even less than that, frankly. But the problem, too, is, uh, you know, we've entered the stage of ruthless capitalism. And these people are under the false notion that they do deserve these things. And that also potentially at any cost. But the other side of it is when you look at these people of great wealth, even though I'm in the top 1%, you know, even in my own investments, I'm only making maybe 3 to 5% a year if I'm lucky, sometimes a little more, often a, little, a lot less. And it also tells you I'm a horrible business person. But, <laughs> but this club is fairly small, and all these people know each other. And they have access to resources, individuals, opportunities that none of us except for them have. And as a result, you know, they're making 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 percent or even 100 percent on their money every year. In fact, as you know, with the pandemic, probably there has been one point seven trillion dollars that have gone into the pockets of the top one percent. And first of all, how is that even possible? <laughs> and you look at this and you sit there and you shake your head. And, you know, as you point out, the nature of wealth is as pernicious as poverty. I mean, you were just mentioning uh, how many children do you know of these individuals who, yes, there's certainly a number who grow up and I'm perhaps not well adjusted, but at least functional, <laughs> but who have done things in their lives, who've accomplished things, who have goals, who understand their responsibilities to the greater society. But there are a ton who, because of abandonment issues, because these people have to run off to the opera or they have to fly the private jet somewhere to meet their friends and they're taken care of by nannies, they feel abandoned and they have this relationship with money where on the one hand, they absolutely hate it because of what it's done to them, but also because they know they haven't earned it. And then the other half though is, who wants to live in poverty? <laughs> I, I, and so they have this thing where, well, they don't want to give it away and they still like you know flying on the jet to Aspen to their wonderful home there, but 
they're still in the dilemma of feeling they don't earn it, which of course then causes a certain amount of insecurity and on some level even shame. So uh, uh, it's a very strange par paradox, and I certainly, uh, you know, I've given uh, many talks around these topics, and uh, you're probably a much better salesperson than I am, but. Uh, uh, you know, it seems unless there is a transformative event that occurs in these people's lives where they have to look at the real world and also understand that they do not control everything. It is outside of themselves. And then they get a vision of um, how they could be of service. And, and uh, you know, as you uh, this wonderful quote of yours that says, our legacy is, is how we live. Uh, not what we leave. And I think that's really uh, important. You know, I, I, I have another one that I think is important. I think we want to really ultimately create a, a world where we're known for what we allocate, not what we accumulate. And um, I had a, a, a client, an extremely wealthy client, who I just, I had so, so much respect for this thing he said to me. He said, I have to really work to not become a billionaire. This guy has hundreds of millions. Because he has hundreds of millions, it catapults him towards billionaire status, like you said. It's totally unfair. His investments, <laughs> he doesn't even like want it. He, he said, I have to really work. I don't want to be a billionaire. I have to really work to not be a billionaire. And he gives a lot of money away, but the, the way the money is invested by the people who manage it is you've got to double it, you've got to triple it. And those people have access to all kinds of investments the rest of us don't even know exist. So it was so interesting when he said that to me, I thought, yes, <laughs> I'm, I, you're one of the few people I've met who's trying not to be a billionaire. And I, and I saw it, but it made me really respect him because he sees how skewed the system is toward people of wealth. I mean, it's totally, it's just totally gamed towards people to accumulate, accumulate, accumulate at the top at the expense of everybody else. We can, you know, say these people are, are uh, maybe a little bit unethical, a little bit immoral, that they, all they care about is the next plane or the next helicopter or the next island, and they can't afford to give money to this, that, and the other thing because they have to buy the next helicopter or the next island. But at the same time, they're caught in a system, in a way of being, in a, in a whole ecosystem, really, an environment that produces that kind of behavior. And really, when you get down to it, because I, I work with a lot of these billionaire families, not a lot of them, but several of them, and it's a privilege to do it, they're just like you and me. All they want Absolutely. is for people to love them and see them. All they want is to be heard. And of course, when you've got a lot of money, everybody listens to you, but they listen to you through the lens Different of lens. what are you going to do for me? So they're not yep. really there for you. And you can't tell who's your friend and who's there to, you know, mooch off you. They're so isolated. Even though there's people all around them, they're totally isolated. And where we really get our satisfaction, our fulfillment is in our relationships in our experience of giving and receiving love, authentic, honest, unfettered, unstuffed. <laughs> Just, I see you, you see me, I appreciate and respect you, you appreciate and respect me. There's nothing that feels better than that. 
And people, when they have a lot of wealth, they, they all, that's almost robbed from them, even with their own kids, even with their own partners. So the, I have so much compassion. Mother Teresa really taught me this. To have compassion for people of wealth and to be, of, uh, to be somebody who's willing to walk into that world and awaken them. Um, and that's a lot of what I do at the Soul of Money Institute. And I, I can tell you, Jim, I've seen miracles, really. And I've, I've seen what extreme privilege does to people. It's, it really does. It's as brutal as poverty. It's brutal. No, no, I, I, I totally agree with you. And, uh, you know, I have no problem of someone working hard and doing well and living well. Uh, but again, as you point out, at the expense of everyone around them who is uh, less fortunate, you know, I gave a lecture at the Stanford Business School, and it was interesting because I gave multiple examples of decision-making. And one of those, as an example, was you've invested in this project, we've bought this very large company, and your options are to close plants, sell the real estate, unemploy 50,000 people, and you're going to make a massive, massive profit. Or your other choice is to keep everyone, become more efficient, and you only make a fifth of that. And amazing about that, it's not the morality around this. It's, well, I guess ultimately it is. It's, well, if I do that other decision where I basically screw everyone, is it illegal? <laughs> <laughs> and this is the interesting thing because, you know, sometimes it's not the letter of the law, it's the spirit of the law. And I'm sure you probably agree with me. You have uh, Davos, and which I always, it, it always fascinates me because you have the most wealthy, powerful people get together to decide these issues of wealth and wealth inequality. But they're the only deciders. And, you know, there's a wonderful quote from Tolstoy, which I, I'm not sure if you've heard. It says, there is a man on your back choking you. He acknowledges he's on your back choking you, but at no time does he ever offer to get off your back and stop choking you. <laughs> and it's this complete lack of uh, self-awareness because the other problem, I think, is, as you pointed out, is these people are completely isolated uh, for all the reasons you said. And so they sit in an echo chamber of people in the same position who, frankly, oftentimes are not self-aware and suffering the same way, but who have the same belief system that if I just get this or that, it's going to be better. I was uh, one time on a yacht in the Mediterranean as a guest of a very wealthy person. And I just happened to be in that part of the world, and they invited me, and I said, sure. But the amazing thing was, I, you know, I'm sitting on this yacht having lunch with this couple. So, and this is like a 150-foot yacht, right? I mean, this is not a, a small yacht, right? So this huge, even larger yacht goes by, and she says, you know, Jim, I have to apologize about you having to, you know, be on this boat. We're have, we have one about that size, but it's going to be a couple years before that's done. So, you know, please accept my apology. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. She wasn't joking. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Uh, 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 but it was interesting to see this lens uh, that this person sees the world from. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, it's uh, as I said, it's it's unfortunate, and uh, my heart goes out to people like that, really, because they can't enjoy what they have. 
and they have so much. Um, but it, when you share it, well, they do enjoy it by sharing it. And I know they enjoyed sharing it with you. So there is so much uh, work to be done in this field that we're talking about now. But I do want to say also that I think the climate crisis and the pandemic, those are two of the many breakdowns that we're experiencing, the racial justice crisis, the leadership crisis, the health crisis, the you know, political crisis, da, 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 go on and on and on. I'll say the pandemic and the climate crisis, those two crises, for me, are not happening to us, they're happening for us. As Paul Hawkins says, the pandemic is, I think, is morning sickness for a species that is pregnant with giving birth to a new way of being. And if we see it as morning sickness, and I know people have died, and I know people are suffering, and I know it's really, 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 really painful. At the same time, on the larger continuum of the evolution of life, that pandemic, that virus is affecting only one species of millions of species in a harmful way. Which one? Us. It's saying something. The indigenous people call it an announcement. They call it an announcement for what's coming, an announcement to the species that, is, uh, that needs to be humbled. And, um, and so one way of looking at it is we're in a kind of a birth canal and we have the opportunity, if we take care of the, this pregnancy, to give birth to a new way of being, a new kinder, gentler, more responsible species than the one that we now are. And the, um, the beauty of, of looking at it that way is to see that it's happening for us rather than to us. We're not the victims of something. And the same thing with the climate crisis. It's the mother, the mother speaking very, very convincingly, you're off course. I'm giving you feedback, big, big, powerful feedback. It's happening for you, not to you, you species. It's humbling you so you see you need to change course. And if we can be humble enough to receive those messages from both the pandemic and from the climate crisis and probably every other crisis we have, we have a chance, I think, to create out of this breakdown, just like you did in your life with the, the, the way you were raised, just like I did in my life with the, my father's death, to turn that tragedy, these tragic things, into that, that breakdown, into the... It has the seeds of the greatest breakthrough we've ever seen as a human family, I think. And I think that's what your life is about. I think that's what your work is about. That's definitely what my life is about, my work is about. And I would imagine anybody listening to this kind of a podcast um, would be open to that idea. Well, uh, you know, it's interesting you say open to this podcast. <laughs> you know, oftentimes the people who need to be at the podcast aren't the ones who, you know, because what we're doing is we're we're preaching to the choir versus getting the people who typically don't go to church into the church. I'm not trying to be cynical, but uh, uh, <laughs> I think that's the case oftentimes. To get back to this idea of transformation and this opportunity, I think you're exactly correct. In fact, I've used the term, we're entering the age of compassion. And I think that's true. The problem, of course, is that as with the age of enlightenment, you know, it's not a one-year, five-year, it's over many years. But I do believe that this is, uh, I hope, a transformation in consciousness. It's interesting how you say these things 
uh, cli- whether now climate change is a much larger issue that affects everyone. But you do make the example of the pandemic, which primarily affects only humans. But unfortunately, it's only humans who are destroying everything, right? And you know, <laughs> some people have asked me, well, you know, what do you think the solution is to the planet? And I said, well, to get rid of human beings. <laughs> <laughs> because you know we're the biggest threat to anything that happens on this planet. I, I think the problem, though, is how do you overcome the ego, the greed, and the avarice of so many people? And of course, uh, while we're in a particular time, you know, if you look at history, it seems over and over again there's always this group who want more and a group who ultimately suffers because of that want. And I do hope that the events that are happening currently do have uh, that sort of impact. Well, I call this age of compassion that you're referring to, I call this century the Sophia century. Um, and I, I like to place it in, in this context of it's the first hundred years in the third millennium. So if you look at the long view, which Buckminster Fuller taught me to do, um, we're 21 years into the first millennium, uh, the first century of the third millennium. So it's a very young third millennium. And I call this century the Sophia century, the century when uh, women will take our rightful role in co-equal co- partnership with men and the world will come into balance. But also the, the century when the divine feminine, which is uh, maybe where very congruent with compassion, will rise to meet the aspects of the patriarchy that are healthy, and the unhealthy aspects of the patriarchy will start to wane as the divine feminine begins to express itself. And there's a beautiful metaphor that I want to share from the Baha'i people, and they say that the bird of humanity has two great wings, a male wing and a female wing, and the male wing is fully extended, fully expressed, and the female wing is not yet fully extended, not yet fully expressed. And for hundreds of years, the male wing, in order to keep the bird of humanity flying, has become overdeveloped, over-muscular, over, 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 and has now become violent. And the bird of humanity has been flying in circles for hundreds of years. But in the first century of the third millennium, they say, that the female wing in all of us, in men and women, will fully express itself. The male wing then can relax, and the bird of humanity for the first time in hundreds of years will soar. And I think that's really true. I think there's more women and more men like you who honor their feminine, uh, their feminine expression, take positions of leadership, and have more um, influence and authority and collaborate, co-labor this new baby, we, uh, rather than compete, we will have uh, an evolutionary transformation. I mean, I'm standing for that. I live for that. I, I may not see it in my lifetime. I'm saying that, you know, I'm naming it as in this hundred years because the last hundred years, the last century of the second millennium was defined by war or the fear of war for 100 years and the number of lives that were lost and all of that. At the same time, we developed and evolved out of that uh, tragedy into people like you 
like the many, many, many people that you teach and train and develop and the people that I work with who are giving their lives, really. And it's, it's not everyone. And just as the caterpillar and the butterfly metaphor that I know you know so well, the caterpillar, when it gets into that overconsumptive space where it eats hundreds of times its own weight, that's part of the natural part of the caterpillar's evolution. And then at a certain point, the imaginal cells inside the caterpillar's body find each other like you and I found each other. And when enough of them cluster, and it's not a majority, it's a minority, when enough of them cluster, they take over, that they become the genetic directors of the caterpillar's future, and the rest of the cells become the nutritive soup out of which the imaginal cells create the absolute unpredictable miracle of a butterfly. And I feel that's where we are. And the imaginal cells need to find each other. The rest of the world, if we find each other, may become that nutritive soup and we can create, maybe it's our birthright, to create the miraculous, unpredictable miracle of a butterfly. And so it's not everybody, probably won't be everybody, uh, but even the nutritive supers uh, will play their role. So I guess it is everybody. <laughs> I'm not sure if I want to be part of that soup. But uh, <laughs> well, I love your metaphors. They're, <laughs> they're wonderful. Well, I think you're right. I, I think that we are in this age and we can call it whatever we want. You know, it's funny you mentioned the imaginal cells because um, – Gosh, and I'm forgetting the name, which I frequently do, but there was a woman who uh, actually, um, she's married to Paul Pullman, who was the head of Unilever and who's done a lot of stuff in terms of transforming the company to be more sustainable. And her name is Kim Pullman, but she had this concept actually related to compassion, which was called imaginal cell. <laughs> and the problem was no one knows if you mention imaginal cells. <laughs> What that means. I mean, when she told me about it, I'm like, what? And I actually had to look it up. And I go, oh, well, that's a perfect metaphor, but it's certainly not a simple metaphor that would be so common to people where they immediately connect to it. You have to go back and look it up. So, but that's that that's fine. Actually, thank you for the compliments about my book. I appreciate that. The um actually I just got my new book optioned. I feel quite uh, happy about that. And I had a different title in mind, but this is my literary agent who probably is much smarter than I am, but it's called uh, Mind Magic, the Neuroscience of Manifestation and How It Changes Everything. The idea is that, at least for me, the secret and the Celestine prophecies are very me-oriented. What do I want? What can I do to get what I want? I want a big house. I want this. I want that. And this actually sort of puts it on its head, but puts it in the context that you get everything when you focus on being of service. So, well, it seems as though the publisher thinks uh, uh, good of it, and I hope that it uh, does well. The other thing I was going to mention uh, is that I started a fellowship, uh, which is called the Global Compassion Fellowship which unlike uh, what your priest said to you regarding going to the congregational church, <laughs> uh, the idea here is that uh, this is open to everyone with this concept of uh, oneness, uh, connection, authenticity, and being of service. And so we do that uh, one Sunday a month. And so uh, we've just started it. I'm doing the first few because the network that 
this this is rising from as people know me but the idea ultimately is to bring people of all different faiths and uh, practices uh, sort of together to support this idea and also to talk about you know our own vulnerability and how unfortunately that drives so many of us to hide from ourselves because we're so afraid of being judged. And so, uh, um, in fact, actually, next Sunday, I'm going to talk about uh, essentially brokenness. And so we'll, uh, have you heard of this, um, the term kintsugi? No. So it relates to something called wabi-sabi, and I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, But this is uh, this Buddhist uh, idea of uh, incompleteness, impermanence, and imperfection. Uh, which is our reality, and we ultimately have to accept that is who we are. But the Kintsugi part of this relates to this practice in the uh, 16th century and beyond in Japan where pottery was very expensive and hard to make. And when a piece was broken, typically they would try to repair it so you couldn't see the imperfections of it. And it, though, changed because ultimately they started using gold glue and so you could actually see and uh, the repair, but you could also see the fact that it's broken. And the idea is to honor our own brokenness because these experiences that have hurt us, damaged us, actually make us who we are. And we shouldn't be afraid of that, and we shouldn't try to hide that fact. Yeah, yeah, I do know what you're talking about now. Say the term again, Ken. Kintsugi, K-I-N-T-S-U-G-I. Well, listen, we've spent a wonderful hour together. Thank you. It was so fun. <laughs> yes. No, it's, and uh, I, I would love to get together uh, actually in person uh, one of these days. You know, we didn't talk about the Pachamama Alliance. So the Pachamama Alliance, Pachamama is a word, Kichwa word that means uh, the earth, the sky, the universe, and all time. So Pachamama is... Mother Earth, really, and an expanded view of the uh, of what Mother Earth is from the Quechua people and the alliance, uh, the Pachamama Alliance, is an alliance between the indigenous peoples of the sacred headwaters region of the Amazon rainforest and conscious, committed people like you and all the listeners of this podcast for the sustainability of life. And we work uh, primarily in the sacred headwaters region of the Amazon, which is southern Ecuador and northern Peru, where the Amazon is sourced with 30 uh, to 35 indigenous groups uh, to uh, empower them, and they're very, very capable, uh, but partnership is important to them, to preserve their land and culture, but most of all, the spiritual and biological source of the Amazon rainforest, which is larger than the United States and is the source of our entire climate system. It's the hydrological heart of the world. It's also part of, along with the oceans, the lungs of the planet. And so we work at the very source of that uh, miraculous system with the Achuar, the Shuar, the Shiwiar, uh, the Andoans, uh, the, the, uh, um, the Zapara, the um, really remarkable indigenous people who have their own challenges. They're not perfect, but they do know how to preserve and sustain uh, the relationship with the natural world. When you talked about um, getting rid of humans altogether, we shouldn't get rid of them because they actually are of benefit to the natural world rather than uh, the predators or the extractors of it. So 
and they can teach us a great deal. So that's Pachamama Lines, and we work in the rainforest in the Amazon to empower the indigenous people to be the natural custodians of those forests as they are. And from the lessons learned from that, we uh, do online courses all over the world, um, and we have volunteers in 88 countries to deliver them in person that are designed to bring forth an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on this planet. So that's our mission, to bring forth an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on this planet as the guiding principle of our time. So that's my Pachamama line short version. Well, that's beautiful and quite eloquent. And it's interesting, though, because you commented on by the best thing for the world is to get rid of humans. But you're right. But it's a particularly ty- different type of human because nature is so important to our evolution as a species. And frankly, when we walk with nature, that gets us back to who we really are. And unfortunately, we've so separated ourselves from that to our detriment. And this is because you can't see the profound connection between our evolution as a species and our relationship with nature. And that's why, you know, many of the bad things happen. You know, you're talking about the extractors, which oftentimes are people chasing wealth. As an example, I know that there was a great struggle and, uh, uh, to protect the Amazon from oil companies. And also, you know, we look at how so much of the Amazon and other forests and ecosystems are affected by these extractive type of behaviors. So I think it's really important. Well, listen, I was going to ask you to say three things to empower us at the end, but you've already said them, and I'm so appreciative, and you are indeed one of my heroes. I look forward to us hopefully getting together soon and spending a bit of time together. And again, thank you so much for being on this podcast. It's uh, very much appreciated. Thank you, Jim, and thank you for all the great work you're doing, and uh, thanks to everybody who's listening, and may we all prevail and uh, create the kind of world we want. Thank you so much. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. <laughs>